Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the Internet. This is a truly global show, but we are going to concentrate this evening on three places. The first, of course, is Britain, where the general election just passed and delivered the result that you could have known if you'd listened to my show last week or indeed any of the previous 25 shows. I'm only going to say this once. Some of you will be relieved to hear. But I was right about everything. Everything that I said came to pass. And ye of little faith who traduced me, who left my Twitter following, who unfriended me on Facebook, who decided to shoot the messenger rather than listen to the message, are now confounded. And I hope you feel suitably foolish and maybe even ashamed. Everything I said would happen in the British general election last Sunday happened on Thursday, despite uh, the youth quake confidently predicted in the bubble that is Twitter. Despite the pictures of queues of hipsters at the polling stations with iPods in their ear, turned out actually all of those pictures were from just two constituencies in the southwest of London. I could tell by looking at those pictures, but those on Twitter, many of them, many thousands of them evidently could not, because beyond the M25 in the rain there were no queues at the polling stations at all. Just a steady stream of people determined to break down what had been Labour's red wall. I predicted to you that Labour would lose dozens, perhaps scores of seats. Well, they lost virtually three scores of seats. I predicted that they would lose them in the West Midlands, in the East Midlands, in the Northwest, in the Northeast, and in Wales. And so they did. Now, how come I knew that with such certainty, but so many of you were of the view that I was talking through my hat? Wrong hat, by the way, if you've already noticed. I got dressed in the dark. I was not talking through my hat. I was talking through 50 years of political experience and the cold reality of actually talking to people on and beyond that Red Wall, not talking to them on Twitter, not talking to them on Facebook, but talking to them face to face and looking into their eyes. It didn't have to be this way. So many people got so bored, indeed got into a rage at Boris Johnson's monotonous, 
repetition, repetition, repetition of a simple mantra. Get Brexit done. But that was an entirely unnecessary dichotomy. That could have been Labour's slogan, should have been Labour's slogan. Labour could, Labour was the first, Jeremy Corbyn was the first man in Britain, I know because I advised him to, who called on the first day for the triggering of Article 50 and the countdown to leaving the European Union. That should have been Labour's platform. Get Brexit done. Of course, the implication would be that if you elect me, if you elect us, we'll give you a better Brexit than the Tories ever would. But get Brexit done. Implement the decision of the Brexit referendum. Respect the result of the Brexit referendum, which was, after all, the policy which gained Labour 40% of the polls just two years ago in the best Labour result since 1945, the biggest increase in the Labour vote since 1945. Why change a winning team? Why change a winning policy? I'll tell you why. Because Jeremy Corbyn was taken hostage, taken hostage by people who broke his arms, broke his legs, tied them behind his back, worked them from behind and told them to say something radically different. And when I pointed that out to so many former friends of mine, they called it disloyalty. As a matter of fact, it was me that was being loyal. And you who were seeking to camouflage that simple truth, to deny it, who were the ones who were being disloyal. I told you over and over again, I would give you my right arm and I meant it for Corbyn to be the prime minister. But I didn't expect it to happen because Labour's betrayal of Brexit, Labour allowing itself to be boxed into a corner as the anti-Brexit party was going to lose them millions of votes in their traditional heartlands, and all to gain Putney and Canterbury. I mean, I, I know Shakespeare asked the question, for Wales? Well, Wales is a great deal more valuable than Putney and Canterbury. All of that was done for labor gains in Putney and Canterbury. Just think about that. Because now that that red wall has been demolished, now that these mining areas, Dennis Skinner, a hero, a titan of the workers' movement, is now an ex-MP and a Tory sits in Bolsover. A Tory sits in Blythe Valley. A Tory sits in Sedgefield. Well, you could say they've had one before in the form of Mr. Tony Blair. This is a thoroughgoing disaster that will, of course, not be repaired by Labour continuing its arc, its trajectory towards being still more of the North London party. Sir Keir Starmer 
Lady Emily Thornberry are the two front runners <laughs> for the next Labour leader. And faster than Jeremy Corbyn wants. Be sure about that. Here's another prediction. They'll force him out within weeks, not months. These people now have the ball at their feet. They are dragging, metaphorically, some of them would like to do it actually, dragging Jeremy Corbyn through the streets to humiliate and flay him. They are dancing on the grave of the Labour Party that I was born into and grew up in, and which is no more. And if these Blairites take back control of the Labour Party, dig in in their love of the European Union, be sure that that red wall will never be rebuilt and there will be Tories camping on hitherto safe Labour ground for as long as, long as most of us here watching and listening to this show are alive. Boris Johnson ran a campaign of simple genius. He didn't produce a manifesto, a shower, a confetti of promises so vast that no one could even remember a single one of them, so many of them well, they. He ran on a, metaphorically speaking, on a single page. Get Brexit done. Implement Brexit. And that's what the people wanted. As you now know, and as I always did. Of course, the tsunami of hatred, masquerading as news, masquerading as journalism, which hit Corbyn every day for more than four years has a very great deal to do with this outcome. But it was made easy for them by mistakes that Corbyn himself made. If he had stood firm from the beginning and insisted on his own definition, the dictionary definition, the accepted definition in the English language, of anti-Semitism and forced, by force of character and repetition, the simple truth that opposition to Israel has nothing to do with antipathy towards Jews. Nothing at all. Instead of running, capitulating, surrendering, throwing his friends under a bus in order to appease a movement that is unappeasable for them, those who, whose whole purpose in politics is to defend Netanyahu's state of Israel, there is no appeasing of them. There can be no appeasing of them. If he'd thrown all of his friends and his family under that bus, it still would not have appeased them. If he'd started to wear the flag of Israel on his lapel, it would not have appeased them. And of course, that tsunami is now on its way across the Atlantic. Bernie Sanders is now an anti-Semite, don't you know? The fact that he himself is Jewish, that his family perished in the Holocaust, has not stopped 
the black propagandists from beginning their evil work and it's now well underway and we'll be talking about that this evening too. Joe Biden is still the front runner for the Democratic Party's nomination. Imagine that. Imagine how Donald Trump looks forward to facing creepy, sleepy Joe Biden and beating him like a drum. I suppose Joe Biden is the American equivalent of Sir Keir Starmer. Not a bad looking man, but as wooden as a post, so wooden the birds are trying to nest in him. Joe Biden is the ideal candidate for Donald Trump to fight. All the others are now falling by the wayside. Elizabeth Warren has reinvented herself yet again, back to being the moderate candidate. She's now playing for a VP slot on Joe Biden's ticket. Only Bernie can beat Donald Trump. That simple truth is as true now as the first time I and many others said so four years ago. But is he going to get it? Will the Democratic Party be like the British Labour Party and always take the wrong course? And we'll be talking about Iraq where the protests, as they were once called, have now become effectively an insurrection. Is Iraq now ungovernable? What will it mean in the region if the current turmoil continues? Who will govern? Are we still seeing, feeling the reverberations of the Bush and Blair attack on Iraq? Now, speaking of Iraq, who would you most like to throw a shoe at? I mention it because that's actually the only justice that George W. Bush has ever faced or will ever face. It's the closest he came when a good man threw both of his shoes quite well at George W. Bush. Though it's got to be said, Bush deftly dodged them. Who would you most like to throw a shoe at? A, Boris Johnson, B, Jeremy Corbyn, C, your choice. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. You can call us, of course. You can email us. You can tweet us at George Galloway, at RTUK News. Make sure you at both of us so that they come through uh, in good time to be read out on the show. But above all, I need your calls. I'm sure we'll get calls on all these three subjects but the British general election will probably prevail. I said I'd only say it once. I'll say it one last time. I told you so. Socialist tipster on Twitter says on the Moats poll, he'd most like to throw his shoe at Emily Thornberry. Not a bad call, that. And a man who doesn't make bad calls is Matthew Goodwin professor of politics and international relations, and he's on the line now to talk to me about the general election results. Professor Matthew, thank you for joining us again. Good evening, George. Now, uh, you predicted, as I did, uh, the outcome of the general election. Uh, not everyone did, especially people on the left. 
So if you'd concentrate on what happened to Labour, first of all, I'd appreciate that. Would you kindly summarise what happened to Labour on Thursday? Well, Labour received its worst election results since 1935. Uh, it uh, effectively went backwards in England, Scotland and um, Wales. And it lost many of its traditional Labour heartlands to the Conservatives, in some cases, areas that have never gone Conservative before. So the Labour Party really did experience uh, a seismic shock. And also, George, I think what's most interesting, perhaps, is that Labour experienced its sharpest declines in the most strongly working class districts. And that would suggest to me that Labour has really lost touch with the very communities that it was founded to represent. Indeed, uh, I was making the point earlier that all of the Brexit sacrifice was made to gain Putney and Canterbury, or hold Canterbury and gain Putney. It's not much of a bargain, that, is it, to lose the Blythe Valley and Bolsover to gain Putney? Well, I think Labour's been pulled in two different directions. I think its, its electorate has really now become structurally unsound in the sense that we have lots of Labour MPs that really have more uh, life uh, uh, common experiences, uh, more affinities with Hampstead uh, than they do with Hartlepool. And I think as a consequence, many voters cottoned onto that. I think this has been a long time coming. I think after 2001, we began to see in the data working class voters leaving politics, not voting at all. And then many of those voters would actually come back into politics to vote for Brexit in 2016. Some of them voted for Nigel Farage and the Brexit party. And then what we saw on Thursday were large numbers of those voters essentially swinging instead behind Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. And this is, I think, especially uh, damning for the current Labour Party, given that a Conservative leader who's passed through Eton and Oxford and is for many people the very embodiment of a, a wealthy elite, has with ease, it appears, converted some of the oldest Labour seats in the country, and that should worry the Labour Party. I said earlier in my introduction this was an unnecessary dichotomy because Corbyn was the first man to call for the triggering of Article 50. He had spent his whole life, I was sitting next to him for most of it, uh, being against the EU. He was the first to call for the triggering of Article 50 and he stood in 2017 on a manifesto uh, that said we would respect the result of the referendum. So get, get Brexit done could actually have been Jeremy Corbyn's slogan in the election, couldn't it? Well, I think there is an interesting difference between 2017 and 2019. As you say, in 2017, Corbyn was essentially respecting people's desires or the referendum result, uh, respecting that, that, that option to leave the European Union and also to reform freedom of movement. And fast forward to 2019, and Labour were essentially saying they wanted a second referendum and would campaign to remain and that they wouldn't make any changes to freedom of movement. And I think, you know, over the last year, 
We've heard a lot of people on Twitter and elsewhere saying that that's exactly where the Labour Party should have moved. And some of us were warning that actually that would really pull the rug from underneath the Labour Party. And now we're left looking at the largest Conservative majority since 1987 and the highest share of the vote for the Conservatives since 1979. So I think a lot of people out there have got a lot of things wrong. And I think they've missed diagnosed uh, where the Labour Party is and ultimately the voters that the Labour Party needs. Well, don't tempt me to name those uh, who got them uh, wrong, uh, but the early signs are, I looked at the bookies' uh, prices uh, before coming on air, uh, that um, Labour's answer or the bookmaker's expectation of Labour's answer uh, to the failure of the current Labour leadership is to pick one or other of two North London MPs, both of them fanatic EU Remain uh, uh, advocates. Well, um, the way that I would describe the Labour challenge at the moment, I've finished reading some of the work by the uh, French economist Thomas Piketty, who, of course, wrote quite extensively about the rise of inequality across uh, advanced democracies. And Piketty's thesis with regards to left-wing parties is that they have effectively been hijacked by what he would call the Brahmin left, uh, socially liberal, often economically liberal, um, uh, university graduates from the cities and, and university towns who have little common experience with some of the communities that their parties were founded to represent. And that has left a massive opening for populist parties and now also for conservative parties. And I have a lot of sympathy with that account, given that it's what we're witnessing in British politics, it's what we're seeing play out. Um, the ease with which the conservatives went into seats like Redcar and Bishop Auckland and Bolsover uh, should worry Labour because once people make that switch and once they give up those tribal allegiances, it's incredibly difficult to get them to go back the other way. And it becomes credible, it becomes legitimate to continue to vote for non-Labour options. And I think that's what worries me. And the Labour Party debate, George, as you say, I think has been woefully inadequate. Already we're talking about leaders and we're not talking about ideas. And the Labour Party needs to get back to talking about ideas and why it's fundamentally become disconnected from these voters. And a leader isn't going to solve that. It's not even uh, just economic ideas, is it? Um, because actually some of the policies, my criticism would be the sheer number of them, the confetti approach of uh, showering uh, policies in their manifesto, but things like public ownership of rail, of water, and so on, uh, by most opinion polls, are really quite heavily supported amongst the British uh, population. Isn't it more to do with the, uh, which uh, Piketty is identifying? These are culture war issues, aren't they? I said here last Sunday that for most working class people, certainly in the North, in the Midlands and North, uh, Labour doesn't look like them anymore, doesn't talk like them, doesn't think like them, doesn't live like them, has a set of values which aren't their values. These cultural questions are really profound and there's no sign of Labour 
either uh, rethinking those uh, matters or being in a position to do it. If you were to say to me now, give me a candidate from the Midlands or the North who could represent uh, a new direction, a, a third way, you might say, I'd struggle to even name one, never mind name a couple, uh, that, that would be capable of carrying that standard. These cultural questions are important, aren't they? I think they're incredibly critical. And I think the debate that we're having now across many democracies is what, what really is in the driving seat. Is it these economic questions over redistribution or is it these cultural questions over values and identities and people's feeling of belonging? And for a long time, a lot of people on the left remained very rigidly attached to the idea that the only thing that matters is economic redistribution. Mm. And I think what we've discovered over the last 10 years in politics, or at least my thesis at least, is that of course that's important. It's absolutely critical. But actually alongside that are some pretty independent but equally intense concerns over national borders, security, ways of life, national traditions. And, you know, Orwell made this point in the 1940s, 1950s, that people's attachment to the nation is an incredibly powerful, potent um, emotion and something that uh, probably has no other uh, rival uh, in politics. And political parties can either learn how to navigate around that or they can uh, ignore it and dismiss it and uh, ultimately uh, feel the consequences of doing so. And I think Labour's position at this election sent a message to many working class voters that while they were on their side economically, they didn't respect their patriotism, they didn't respect their ways of life, uh, they weren't particularly concerned with uh, how they view the European Union, how they view the nation, how they view uh, uh, their home. And um, as a consequence, they abandoned the Labour Party in droves. And George, you've seen it as well as I have. You know, social media over the last 18 months has been full of of people saying, you know, leave those communities, uh, urging the Labour Party to turn to Hampstead and give up on Hartlepool. And the consequence of that strategy was underlined by the results coming in in the early hours of Friday morning. It was disastrous, completely disastrous. This is summed up uh, in the, the, if you'll recall, the Emily Thornberry uh, tweet with the, about the England flag, white van man with his uh, England flag. Uh, many people in the Labour Party would be far more comfortable holding the flag of Bolivia or Venezuela than they would a flag of their own country, whereas left-wing people in France or in Spain, both imperialist countries historically, uh, would have uh, absolutely no qualms whatsoever with their national flag. So the patriotism issue is uh, important. Uh, the people, working class people we're talking about, felt that Labour uh, had more in common with, certainly more love for, the European Union than they did for their own country. Well, we've heard a lot of discussion of Clement Attlee during the uh, uh, Corbyn reign. 
I think Clement Attlee was fundamentally a patriot, uh, somebody who talked about his love of the country, somebody who recognized um, what, uh, you know, what Orwell referred to as the, the sort of social mood in the country. And I think the problem for the Labour Party today is that, as reflected in Emily Thornberry and um, other elite candidates who have been parachuted in to represent working class constituencies, is that uh, that link has become fundamentally broken. And I, uh, you know, people keep telling me that this is like 1983. I, George, I think it's a lot worse than 1983. I think Labour in 1983 held much of Scotland. It held many of its heartlands. Today, it's being chased out of both. And it doesn't seem to know where its electoral alliance is. And, you know, that is deeply worrying for a political party that just went up against a governing party that's been office, it been in office for nearly a decade. Yeah. You know, this is inexcusable. A decade and, of austerity at that. Well, exactly. And an economic squeeze and a highly divisive, divisive debate over Britain's place in the world. And you put all of that together and it's incredible that a main opposition party, which should otherwise be a progressive international party, walked away with its worst performance since 1935. Now, I'd love to speak to you all night, but you're a very busy man. May I ask you just one more question? The, uh, the, the biggest takeaway after the ones we've just been talking about is the uh, constitutional crisis, which is pregnant in the uh, election results uh, with Scotland. Uh, the Scottish National Party uh, swept the boards virtually, winning almost all the parliamentary seats. They now claim that as a mandate for a second independence referendum. That is the after the one that was a once-in-a-lifetime referendum uh, just four years ago, uh, five years ago. Uh, are they going to get that? How is Boris Johnson going to handle that nascent constitutional crisis, which could actually uh, see us leaving the European Union and losing half of our country? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, as Boris Johnson seemed to allude to today, I don't think we're going to have a referendum in Scotland any time soon. I think they, the Conservative Party will push that back as long as they can. I think also the SNP is going to be distracted during much of 
the early part of 2020 with the Alex Salmon trial. I think that will be potentially quite damaging for the SNP. And I think the Conservatives will be hoping that by delivering in some of their key areas and by drawing attention to what they feel is a very weak record um, of the SNP in Scotland domestically, that they'll be able to continue to make more ground up north of the border. And that by the time we get to the end of Boris Johnson's administration, that perhaps the uh, Scottish independence issue will have uh, perhaps not been as potent uh, as it feels that it is at the moment. So I think there are a lot of things that can change. I think we know the fundamentals. We know we're in for a global slowdown over the next few years. We know that the British economy might be caught up in that. And we know that in general, we've got a conservative administration that's more interested in appealing to non-London areas, really uh, is more interested than any other conservative administration we've had in a long time. So I think that's going to have some unpredictable effects. Um, And I think it's just simply a case, George, of watch this space. I think it's too early to say one way or the other what exactly is going to happen. But right now, don't forget, the Labour Party in Scotland reduced to one seat. And that reminds us, never forget how quickly political change can happen and never forget how quickly a political party can be wiped out in uh, rather large areas of the country. Professor Matthew Goodwin, thank you kindly for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate that. That's Matthew Goodwin. you had, and we're spoiling you, you had uh, Professor Sir John Curtis last week, Professor Matthew Goodwin, Professor of Politics and International Relations. This week, the two finest cephologists, political scientists alive in the English-speaking world today, in my opinion. I said earlier that if you'd listened to me last Sunday, you already knew the results of the general election. I, I, I took an even bigger flyer. Uh, in my short for RT, uh, three days before the general election. And with uncanny accuracy, everything I said turned out to be true. Take a look. The British general election is ending exactly as it began. The air is thick with allegations that the Russians are coming. In the beginning, believe it or not, it was Labour alleging that Boris Johnson and the Conservatives were in the pay of the Russians. It's ending with the allegation, now coming from every spook source in the land, that somehow the Russians managed to give Jeremy Corbyn details of Britain's trade discussions with Donald Trump's administration for the post-Brexit era. Neither allegation, of course, is true, but it's a measure of just how magnificent a figure this Vladimir Putin has turned out to be. He picked the last American president and is trying to pick the next one. He rigged the Brexit referendum. He created a national movement in Catalonia. He even tried to break Scotland off from London. All the while, running rather an important and large country at the same time. There is no end to the talents of the magician in the Kremlin. All of the foregoing was, of course, a joke. And so 
are these allegations. The truth is, the election is ending as it begun, with the Tories very considerably ahead. In the Sunday papers, in the largest poll, you might say, therefore, the most authoritative poll, the Conservatives are 15 points clear, and Labour is heading for a 1983-style heavy defeat, at which point its leader, Jeremy Corbyn, presumably walks to be replaced by the man that's been operating him for months, the Shadow Chancellor, John MacDonald. But if JC were to win, it would be, quite frankly, a miracle, and he'd be able to walk across the Thames, ascend the wall into the Parliament House as Britain's first ever socialist, anti-imperialist Prime Minister. It would be extraordinary that an entitled oaf like Boris Johnson could become a majority Prime Minister, the wisest fool in Christendom, overeducated but underwise. Labour will have lost of their own doing. Labour's U-turn on the Brexit issue has lost them, I'm absolutely certain. Dozens, maybe scores of seats behind what used to be called the Red Wall in the Midlands, in the North West, in the North East, and in South Wales. Amongst working class people in Britain, there's a feeling, I'm here to tell you, for I experience it every single day, that Labour now neither looks, sounds, or is like them. It's a kind of culture war issue. Working class people do not believe that the metropolitan, middle-class, university-educated Labour Party of today has anything very much to do with them. General election 2019 will also mark, mark my words, the beginning of the end of the so-called mainstream British media. I see no justification for paying to be lied to, and the British people have been lied to in a deluge, in a tsunami of lies and distortion about the personalities and the policies and the general approach of both of these main parties. And my final word is this. Those of you who were up in arms going to the High Court to stop the prorogation of the last parliament will be begging for the next parliament to be prorogued because Trust me on this, another five years of majority Tory government led by Boris Johnson is not going to be nice to look at. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Well, unbelievably, uh, the audience for this point in the evening is 66% higher uh, than the average. How about that then? And the poll, who would you most like to throw a shoe at? Boris Johnson, 51%. Jeremy Corbyn, 34%. And your choice, 15%. And there's all kinds of those uh, coming up on my Twitter feed. Uh, someone says it'd have to be a very big shoe to hit multiple targets. Someone else says be Benjamin Netanyahu uh, any day of the week. Emily Thornberry's uh, getting uh, plenty of shoes hurled in her direction. You can also call me on this. 
if you'd like. Anyway, I've got a call uh, for, from Halifax in England. That's from Carol. At least I assume Halifax in England. Carol, go ahead. It's actually Hepton Bridge, George. Good evening. And, uh, Good evening to you. It's just that it occurred to me that I had spoken at Hall in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I thought ah. for a minute you were one of my audience from there. Go ahead, <laughs> Carol. Go ahead in Hebden Bridge. Oh, George, um, I, I just wanted to say, uh, yeah, you got it spot on about... I, I'm a, a lifelong Labour voter that actually voted uh, for a Tory MP, I'm afraid to say. On Thursday, I've completely... Uh, completely been disenfranchised with the Labour Party now for a long time. Um, it, what, were it, your, it, what were your main problems with it, Carla? Gosh, where do I start? Um, I thought the manifesto uh, in certain parts was fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm really pro the renationalisation, for instance, of the utilities. I think that's absolutely a vote winner right across the, uh, the board. I'm, I'm, I'm a regular train user. Have to go. It's just a horrendous what's going on with the trains at the moment. Mm. But uh, what was my main problem with with Labour? I just, it, I, I, just I do not feel that Corbyn has any empathy uh, with the working man in the UK. Um, I also feel that the the, the absolute constant uh, pre-provocation, uh, pre sorry, on on Brexit was a disgrace. Um, as you've mentioned before. Uh, I watched Legsit, which is a fantastic film, by the way, and everybody should watch it. Um, the, the traditional, I think, uh, Labour position on leaving the EU was leaving the EU. Um, I was absolutely hor horrified to hear that the fact that they were going to have another referendum on that. Um, I just, just genuinely thought it would just been utter fucking, sorry, utter disaster. Uh, Business-wise as well, I work in the private sector. Uh, there was genuine concerns as well. I, I work for a company that publishes news for the creative sector, a creative sector that traditionally supports Labour, but there was genuine horror about the broadband and uh, the taxation. And it just, I, I just feel very disenfranchised uh, from the party. And there's just a, a lot of concern, George. It's very hard to... to you know, put your finger on exactly what it is, but I, I don't Are you saying this was the, the first time that you have ever voted Conservative? Completely. Did and, you feel, uh, did you feel any that... sense of uh, guilt or regret or even shame about that? Not really, no, because I just don't feel that Labour was worth putting my cross against and uh, there was no other party, there was no Green candidate. Um, no, I don't. I, I actually on, honestly think if Labour had got in, it would have been a disaster, George. I just don't feel it was. It, it, they, they, they have a, a coherent policy for the UK at the moment. Well, that's which a very. Really uh, me. Yeah, it really does. Very interesting call, Carl, and thank you for uh, making it. Uh, I mentioned Canada. Now we have one from Calgary, Fraser, who sounds like he's of Scottish descent. Go, go ahead, Fraser. Hello, George. It's a pleasure to speak to you. And to uh, you. You're not just of Scottish there. descent. You're the real deal. That's it. <laughs> West Coast, indeed. Um, so I was just phoning uh, because, obviously, the general election was a, an absolute disaster for Labour. And, uh, as a young voter myself, um, I've only ever voted Labour in my life. But I'll tell you, this time, took a real uh, holding of the nose, shall we say. Um, and after everything that's happened, I guess, I just feel a bit you know, left in disillusion because 
my God, I can't stand the Scottish Nationalist Party either, but it looks like they're... I think there are millions, uh, to, you know. I think there are millions of people like you, uh, in, and, and including, uh, of course, those that didn't hold their nose but crossed the floor, uh, like Carl yeah. in, in Halifax. So there's millions who did vote Labour, uh, but did so in a way against their better judgment and certainly yeah. against their inner feelings. And, of course, there are millions that actually didn't, some of them, like Carl, for the first time. What were your main problems with Labour? Well, well the main problem is, um, uh, against my better judgment, I started off as a Remainer, and then as soon as the referendum came through, as a, as a real Democrat of the left, I said, well, you know, let's, let's get on with it. And then ever since then, it's just been abuse and abuse on the left, well, uh, you know, that, so I'm, so glad, uh, I'm yeah. so glad you made that point, Fraser, because I was going to make that point to uh, Professor Goodwin, but we were running out of time. It's not just that so many Labour people had drunk the Kool-Aid of the European Union. It's their predisposition to abuse, insult, uh, yeah. libel uh, those of us who didn't drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, we're racists. We're even fascists. We're chauvinists, yeah. xenophobes. No insult uh, base uh, enough was uh, too much for them. And that kind of abuse actually, well, I could show you my scars, <laughs> Fraser. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's really very hard to take, especially when thee and me have turned out to have been proven entirely correct. So, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a tough few years ahead, but I think I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I'm definitely not going to bow down to the nationalists that are trying to recruit the remainers of the left. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. That, that's, one, uh, that's one party I won't be a part of. For sure. Well, I, I look forward to fighting uh, Nicola Sturgeon's uh, next yeah. uh, referendum because I believe that it is hopelessly overestimated how much love the Scottish people have for the European Union, especially when the campaign begins and all the consequences of Scotland making application to join, uh, rejoin the European Union are spelled out. Consequences of currency, consequences of trading relations with England, consequences of freedom of movement, of cheap East European labour into Scotland, all the people that can no longer get into England are going to Scotland. The need to build a wall because if you don't, they'll be climbing, uh, they'll be climbing over the border <laughs> to get into uh, England. All of these consequences are hopelessly underestimated uh, by yeah. the people that imagine that the Scots are going to vote easily for separation. I don't believe that they will. Fraser, thanks. An excellent call, my friend. Dave is in Dover. Let's hear from him. Dave, welcome. Hi. Hi. Well, I, I've also voted Labour all my life. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm 50 years old now. Uh, and the, the, there's only one reason. It was a referendum. If you're going to go against the majority then it isn't a democracy, and it's as simple as that. And it's a shame, because he had the opportunity. All he needed to do was, in the beginning, stand up and say, I, personally, I don't want to be in the European Union, but I'm in the Labour Party, so I'm going with what the majority say, and fought against the second referendum. 
I did fight against it. To be, Dave, uh, not everybody knows, but I'm in a position to know that Corbyn actually fought these hijackers all the way. The problem is he only did so inside a closed room. None, that, none, that, none of the rest of the country the were ever told no. this. And that's, that's the main problem about everything. I mean, it goes back to who's controlling the media. Because all we've got is sound bites all the time. And people have... I, I, unfortunately, now I'm disabled. I broke my back, broke my neck, so I can't work anymore. So I, I've got more time to actually look at what's really going on. But when I used to work, um, the only thing I could do was watch the news and then read the, a quick read of the paper and then get back to work. So mm. you, you get the information that you're given, and that's what your world revolves around. And you don't notice that, actually, there's no coverage of, of Jeremy Corbyn uh, when it is, it's taking the mickey out of him. Mm. He's got some good ideas. Anti-Zionism, anti for example, is pathetic. There's no way he's anti-Zionist. Anti well, he's certainly, he's certainly not anti-Semitic, anti which is what they further yeah. claim. It actually means anti-Arabic. It's nothing to do with Jews, but that, that is yeah. another soundbite. Leaving, and, yeah. and Leaving that aside. The they use the sound bites to to make a point. Well, they're now uh, they're, they're now doing it against Bernie Sanders in the United States. Dave, thanks for the call. Sorry, I have to cut you short. Scott is in Glasgow. Go ahead, Scott. Yes, hello, George. Oh, just three points here. I mean, it's not just ten years of Tory propaganda. It's not even forty. It's four hundred. I mean, four hundred years of colonial instilling of I'm better than you, and at the same time, hundreds of years of conditioned working class forelock tugging. I mean, obviously, uh, going against the Brexit vote was a deliberate sabotage by the Blairites. They have all the resources to get inside millions of people's heads. You know, I think they knew. I like think that. they knew, Scott, they, they what knew. the outcome would they be. Knew. They wanted it. Of course. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. They never wanted sabotage. Corbyn to be the PM. They never. They never wanted it. No. It, and and they know what they're doing before they even. You know, they know what the people are going to do before they've even done it themselves. You know. Obviously, it's the bought-up media as well. But I'm back back uh, to my first point. You know, the, the ember, I think, of, of um, ember of racism, I have to say, uh, is within a lot of British people. I know I'm going to get a lot of backlash for that. I mean, it only took the oxygen of austerity to ignite that. I mean, I've seen it. I'm mixed race. I've lived it. I mean, Brexit, as big as it was, it couldn't have ignited something that was not already burning. And well, that... uh, yeah, I mean, Britain, uh, with its imperial history, obviously has... Yes. You can't have an empire if you don't think you're superior to the people you're no. colonising. Uh, no. but, uh, but it's not nearly as racist as most of the countries of the European Union. If you think Britain's racist, you've never lived in France, as they say, Scott. I haven't lived in France, but I've lived in other European countries, and I can see that. I mean, uh, in some European countries, it, it's, it was, until, until recently, I would describe it as being like Britain in the 70s or even like, you know, the, the 50s, until now. And people are saying, well, is this worse than the Thatcher years? Yes. Yes, this is worse now. When you get people, what you can see in, in, are in you some getting, of European countries... Can I just ask you something, because this is yeah. quite important. It's oftentimes said uh, that uh, Scotland doesn't have uh, racism, all this civic nationalism and uh, all of that. But you're saying that racism in Glasgow, in Scotland, 
is worse than it was than in the Thatcher no, era. No, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm saying across Britain. I'm saying in, I mean, the 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 the, the places that not not particularly Glasgow, although it has its it has its pockets. What I'm saying is the places that Labour lost, it didn't take much to ignite what was already there. Now, anyone, anyone of colour, I'm going to say, will know what I'm talking about there. It never went away, George, and it only took... I mean, this stuff is kept bubbling under for, for when it's needed. It was needed now. When, when, you know, when, when austerity came, who do we blame? Who do we blame? So this, I'm better than you, this instilling of I'm better than you, mm. is kept... This empirical notion is kept there. The ember is kept there, and then it's stoked up when needed, and it's been stoked well, up because uh, it's look, needed uh, now. Well, look, Scott, as you said, uh, your contribution has been controversial. I'm sure many people will want to mm. respond uh, to it. Thanks yeah. very much, though, for making it. Alistair is in Lincolnshire. Let's hear from him next. Alistair. Uh, good evening, George. Good evening, sir. Uh, yeah, I was telling your researcher that... Um, I watched the Labour Party conference this year, and um, after it, I was absolutely stunned because um, I couldn't believe that they were actually going to um, put such an extreme left-wing set of policies to the British electorate. Now, don't get me wrong. In most cases, I actually support those policies. But it wasn't, Alistair, I'll come back to you, Alistair, of course. Uh, but was it more left-wing than the one in 2017 that got 40% of the vote? If so, in which ways? I think it was, wasn't it, it more left-wing in terms of certainly the amount of money they were proposing? Yeah, probably. I haven't counted that up, but it probably was a bigger spend, yeah. Um, I, I just think that the... Uh, the nationalisation programme, they should have slowed down. I don't know. Alistair, have... he put that forward in the last election and, and it did fantastically well. Yeah. Well, some of the nationalisations are very popular, no doubt. But what I'm saying is generally is that they should have taken a better strategic uh, view coming to this election and actually sort of position themselves between... Um, the sort of right wing of the Labour Party and, and where they are there, sort of in the middle, uh, and not so so much so. Isn't that, that what Gordon... On. But didn't Gordon Brown try that in 2010, Ed Miliband uh, in 2015? I mean, Corbyn got more votes uh, than Tony Blair's last election victory, Gordon Brown's election defeat, and Ed Miliband's election defeat. Even bad though well, Labour's vote was, it was bigger than any of those three? Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband weren't as extreme as... or weren't as left-wing as, as Jeremy Corbyn was. No, and they, got lesser and, I, and they got lesser votes, which is my point. Yes, yes, absolutely. But what I'm saying is, is that it got to the point where I don't think the British public believed that I mean, we've had no, I think you're onto slow... something there. It's the believability of Labour's yeah. promises, which is, for yeah. me, uh, a bigger issue uh, than the quantum, because I'm not yeah. sure that most people would say, oh, no, we're spending too much money. They want to know what the money's being spent on. Is it being invested or is it being thrown away on a garden yeah. bridge, as 
Boris Johnson once proposed here in London. Uh, I, I think it's the believability issue. If we can't believe you on Brexit, how can we believe you that none of us will be paying uh, very much more tax? That believability mm -hmm. issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so did, you, did you vote Labour? I did vote Labour, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, my question, um, I heard one of the callers earlier saying that she normally votes Labour that went to the Tories. Yeah. Can, can I just ask, I mean, a general question. Yeah. To all those same people who did that, do they actually believe that, they, that life is going to be better under Boris Johnson? Well, I think I can't. Yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, it's not something I could uh, even imagine in my wildest dreams myself. Uh, I suppose her answer would be, "Well, at the very least, uh, we'll get Brexit done," and that should have been Labour's policy. That's my point. Well, I agree. Even though that's going to be a disaster, of course, as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I agree that they should have said it. I agree with you on mm, that. Mm. Okay, look, Alistair, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We don't get that many calls from Lincolnshire, so don't be a stranger. Call uh, back. Now, the Grey Zone Project is the best journalistic outfit operating in the United States today. Forget the Washington Post, the New York Times, forget Fox News or CNN. The Grey Zone people are where it's at. Many of my good friends are working there and foundation members of it. And Ben Norton is their assistant editor. And I'm glad to say he joins me now. Ben, thank you very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Before we get into Donald Trump's travails, can I ask you something that I think is going to become uh, a much bigger story than it even is at this moment? We've just lived through four years of the crucifixion of Jeremy Corbyn uh, on the entirely false allegation uh, that he is somehow anti-Semitic. I now believe, and uh, I interviewed on this show, although on a different platform, uh, uh, quite some time ago now, uh, someone who predicted uh, that the attack on Corbyn on this front uh, was going to be used, it was a trial run really, uh, for its use against Bernie Sanders. The fact that Sanders is himself Jewish would not, he said, uh, be an obstacle uh, to that. Can you tell me how that's looking? Is that looking more and more likely as a serious line of attack on Sanders? Absolutely. We've seen more and more that the same tactics used to try to destroy and to successfully destroy Jeremy Corbyn and his progressive movement in the UK have been repurposed against the first major Jewish presidential candidate in the US. And like you said, you know, that might seem very striking to people, but actually it shows how this is a political weapon. It confirms the point that Corbyn supporters were saying from the very beginning that this was all a witch hunt, that it was not based on actual anti-Semitism, of which Boris Johnson is actually an example. He is much more anti-Semitic than Jeremy Corbyn, who has actually fought racism his entire life. And similarly with Bernie Sanders, this is a guy who is himself Jewish. And also, unlike Corbyn, you know, Bernie has a very mixed record on Israel-Palestine. He has spoken out in support of Palestinian rights, and that's very important.
But actually, you know, his record is not nearly as noble as that of Jeremy Corbyn, but they're still going to use it because it's a political weapon. It's not based on any truth. And it's a political weapon that is not only based, backed by the Israel lobby, but more importantly, by intelligence services. And just as we saw with the smear campaign for more than four years against Corbyn, this was a full frontal attack backed by domestic British intelligence agencies, American intelligence agencies, and other foreign intelligence agencies. This is not just speculation. The, the British journalist Matt Kennard, who's, who's quite good, actually published a report looking, documenting at least 34 major media attacks on Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour Party that were directly based on supposed intel from British and American intelligence agencies. This was very clear. In the last week, they went into hyperdrive, smearing him as a terrorist sympathizer, an anti-Semite, all of these things. And they're going to repurpose these same smears, not just the corporate media, but intelligence agencies, to try to destroy Bernie Sanders. They're going to go after him, for instance, because Bernie took a trip to the Soviet Union on his honeymoon because Bernie supported the Sandinistas. And unfortunately, in the past several decades, since the end of the Cold War, since the, the overthrow of many socialist governments, Bernie has kind of moved away from that kind of anti-imperialist stance that he used to embody more strongly. But still, for the neoliberal establishment, if you're to the left of Hillary Clinton, you're too left wing and they're going to try to do everything they can to destroy him. Yeah, he may have moved uh, away from these things, but the video and the pictures and the newspaper cuttings all still exist. So they will, uh, of course, try to uh, resurrect them. Uh, but as you say, um, this is a man who is Jewish, whose uh, family members, uh, some of them perished in the Holocaust, and who is actually a Zionist, a supporter of Israel. Uh, he, he's a critic, of course, uh, of uh, Israeli crimes, uh, but he is in no sense someone who questions the legitimacy of the existence of a Zionist uh, state. You still think that notwithstanding all of that, Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This could get traction? Absolutely, because it simply confirms the point I was just stressing, that this is not about anti-Semitism. It's not even necessarily about criticism of Israel. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But this is simply a blunt political weapon that right-wing forces and intelligence agencies and the corporate media are all colluding and using to destroy left-wing forces. It is so clear that this is the new tactic. Even if you still support Israel, as Bernie does, even if, you know, this is a soft Zionist, even if you still are a soft Zionist, if you, if you criticize the apartheid regime that is called Israel, if you criticize its war crimes in Gaza, as as Bernie has done, that is too much 
for this right-wing military intelligence establishment because Israel is simply a symbol of imperialism and colonialism. Israel is one of the last remaining European-style settler colonial projects in the heart of the Middle East. And it has been a bastion first for British imperialism and now for American imperialism. They spend billions of dollars to help fuel the American military industrial complex. They work closely with Western militaries and NATO militaries. They helped wage the war on Syria. They want to destroy Iran and all progressive resistance forces in the Middle East. So if you oppose that project, even in a minor way, even if you're not fully against it, for the military and intelligence establishment, that really dominates politics in all of these so-called democracies, these imperialist institutions that were created after World War II to, to maintain European and American hegemony and capitalist control over the world. If you oppose even one part of one cog in this larger machine, then they're going to use this smear because it's a political weapon. It's not true. It's not about racism. It's not about anti-Semitism. The, in fact, J Donald Trump himself is actually anti-Semitic. Just a week ago, he told Jewish supporters, oh, you're going to support me because you have money. Everyone knows Jews have money. He is actually anti-Semitic, but they don't care because Donald Trump is fully on board with Zionism, with imperialism, with wars, even though he says he's been criticizing well, look, them. Uh, so on that point, Ben, I mean, and yet, and yet, uh, these very same agencies part of the deep state in the United States, have also been trying, have they not, to destroy Donald Trump? Well, the, yes, there are different splits within it, of course. So Donald Trump has completely thrown his weight behind apartheid Israel. He recognized Jerusalem as the supposed capital, which is, of course, illegal under international law. He's working very closely with the most far-right elements of the Israeli apartheid regime. So there's no question of that. But it is true that for other reasons, elements of these same military intelligence agencies have also been trying to unseat Trump. Why? A few reasons. Of course, because he doesn't see Russia as the enemy, as the big boogeyman. So Israel is just one, like I said, Israel is one cog in this larger imperialist machine. Trump is on board with Israel, but he's not on board with war against Russia. He, until recently, was criticizing NATO, although we've seen that he's completely taken a 180 and now supports NATO. And also simply because Trump is not reliable. He's not a reliable imperialist in the same way many of these other leaders have been. He's, he, for instance, supported the peace deal with North Korea and until it was really sabotaged by some of the same neoconservatives that he surrounded himself with, specifically John Bolton, Trump has pursued a somewhat unorthodox foreign policy. It's not all war and regime change. He has, in some cases, supported peace and diplomacy. He hasn't, actually, and for the military-industrial complex, any peace and diplomacy is too much. He hasn't started a new war, and by year three of a first term, that's quite remarkable. Well, we'll see. I mean, he's, of course, done a lot of saber rattling. And I agree that compared to Hillary Clinton, who probably just would have destroyed the state of Syria, it is quite refreshing to see that Trump hasn't waged an entirely new military war. But at the same time, we should keep in mind 
that he has drastically expanded economic war. Sure. He imposed a crippling blockade on Venezuela, which has led to at least 40,000 civilian deaths. So he hasn't been dropping bombs on Venezuela, but he's been killing large numbers of, of civilians in Venezuela. Of course, the sanctions on Iran. So it's true that it's and it's good to see that Trump hasn't waged a new military war, although he, it looks like he might try to do something with Iran. At the same time, the economic war is just as deadly. How is he faring in the, uh, in the last vestiges of Russia Gate, which has now morphed into Ukraine Gate? Uh, are they going to get their impeachment motion through, do you think? Well, potentially through the House, but of course the impeachment proceeding is going to completely stop dead in its tracks in the Senate. It's never going to pass the Senate, but, but House Democrats will use this as a short-term political cudgel to attack Trump. You know, we've been talking about this for many months, George, and, and I actually think, unfortunately, this is going to backfire and blow up in the faces of Democrats, as it has with Russiagate. You know, this is these are the final withdrawals of Russiagate, which has morphed into Ukrainegate. We've seen that neoliberal centrist Democrats, just like the Blairites, who destroyed the potential for labor to win in the UK, they are potentially destroying the potential for the Democrats to win against Donald Trump here. If you look at his ratings and polls, they actually haven't really declined. And all this has done is helped embolden Donald Trump's base and confirmed these points that he's been saying that it's been a witch hunt against him. You know, critics, progressive critics like me and many others have been saying from the very beginning that we should be criticizing Trump for, like I said, the economic warfare against Venezuela, the, the genocidal war that began under Obama that he has continued overseeing in Yemen that has led to hundreds of thousands of deaths, the fact that he's occupying Syria's sovereign oil wells. These are the issues that we Democrats like oil, agree on. In fact, we Democrats like just gave him Exactly. And Democrats, in fact, just the vast majority of House Democrats just sided with House Republicans and gave Trump a $738 billion military budget. Mm. So instead, they're wasting all of their time on this temporary bipartisan, the temporary partisan attack in, in impeachment proceedings where the Republicans support Trump and the Democrats attack Trump. And they're trying to find this incendiary short-term political issue to ignite both of their bases and distract from the fact that all of Trump's worst crimes are supported by the majority of the right-wing Democratic establishment. You're quite a considerable star, Ben Norton. Thank you again for a brilliant uh, tour de force of an interview. From the Grey Zone Project, everyone follow them. Grey Zone, Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, uh, Anya Parampil. All brilliant, brilliant journalists and brave ones uh, too, facing up to uh, some considerable personal difficulties, both abroad and in the United States. I'm joined uh, by Ask Adam, hashtag Ask Adam, lots of hashtag Ask Adam questions uh, there. And we've also got a second poll, I think, uh, coming up. What was your Portillo moment of the night on Thursday night, Friday morning? You know, the moment you were waiting up for or the uh, moment that gave you the greatest joy or even I suppose the greatest uh, sadness. Uh, who, whose defeat, whose political defeat or victory uh, was uh, most powerful? 
uh, for you. People always remember uh, the moment that uh, I beat, no, uh, that Michael Portillo uh, <laughs> lost. Uh, and uh, so they've become known as Portillo moments. So here's the options. Uh, what was your Portillo moment? A, Joe Swinson. B, Chuka Omona, spelt wrongly. Uh, <laughs> C, Anna Subri, or Sober, as I call her. Uh, I used to say she was better before breakfast. Um, Joe Swinson, Chuka Omona, or Anna Subri. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Which moment gave you the greatest satisfaction uh, when the results uh, were known? Well, Adam, it's been quite a week. It certainly has been. I've no, uh, I've no need to ask you if you're pleased with the outcome. <laughs> well, no, it, was, it was lovely seeing the people in Labour's hotlands giving the sweet, sweet fly swad of destiny to what I call the Islington Mafia. So, and now we've got Christmas coming up, and I think I've got some Christmas reading, which is always nice, uh, which is your book, your first novel, not your first ah, book, yeah, but your it, first it's novel. It's pre-ordering tonight, actually. It's, yeah. uh, it's just been... A war story. Out. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's my first novel. I've written lots of books, but novels are, a, you know, a particular challenge. They, they're because, a different uh, animal, yeah. They're a definitely a different animal. It's yeah. taken me a long time, but I've now written two. Uh, so the, it's a series. So uh, part one is out now. You can uh, pre-order it now. I think it's info, yeah, info at georgegalloway.com. Or you see it on my Twitter. I'm really happy with the cover. I think the oh, it's lovely. The, the cover is a, a thing of uh, real beauty. Yeah, it's it's counterfactual history. What if? It's, I've always been fascinated by that genre. Indeed. If this had happened rather than that, or the path not taken had been taken, uh, and so it uh, its fiction is that Hitler, that Dunkirk has failed, that three hundred thousand of our men are roaming. Some are in captivity, but others are roaming, armed. Uh, in uh, German-occupied France, but the admirals have betrayed us. And there were quite a few admirals, and I named some of them in the novel, uh, who were Hitler uh, fans, mm -hmm. who were fascists. The admirals have betrayed us, and Hitler has made it across the Channel. And uh, he has occupied London, parts of the southeast, uh, but he doesn't occupy South Wales or the Midlands, and far less Scotland. And that's where the resistance uh, begins. Well, Sounds it begins in London, in the East End of London, actually. Mm -hmm. But its heartland is is in South Wales, the Midlands, the North, and uh, and Scotland, where the Nazis are not here yet in enough numbers to properly garrison uh, more than the castles in these areas. And so, uh, Mr. Churchill had pledged uh, to resist them until he choked uh, on his own blood. And you'll see in the novel whether or not I think he would have done, and if he had, what the impact uh, would have been. Uh, so it was Britain's darkest hour, but also the dawn uh, of resistance. Mm. I, I'm really pleased with it. I hope people like it, and I hope I get the chance to publish the second part. It'll probably be three, four, maybe five parts, because once you start on this counter, you're not going to want history, to put it down. You don't want to put it down because, of course, if this happened instead of that, well, that has all kinds of consequent knock-on uh, effects. Are you going to do an audio version? Yeah, I think I will. Uh, I mean, this is a print version now. I'm going to sign them, uh, certainly the pre-order copies. Uh, then I'll do uh, an e-book version. And then probably ultimately I'll do a, an audio 
in my own voice. Brilliant. Some people like my own voice. I think so. Anyway, I wanted to ask you something about the election, not the obvious thing, perhaps the thing that nobody else is thinking about at the minute. Why did Nigel Farage get it all uh, so wrong? I mean, in one sense, uh, you could say that Brexit's going to get done, so his work is done. And that's true, and you have to take your hat off to him for the role he played in that. But he has actually destroyed his party uh, by the cockamamie election strategy that he followed, and uh, they they died uh, on Thursday night. Surely it was. Yeah, I don't think that we're going to see a Brexit party after the end of January when Brexit now is going to happen because there's no parliamentary minority to get stymied by Gina Miller and her other gang of merry men, women and other grim ones. I think what the Brexit party should have done was sit this election out and unlike Nicola Sturgeon, who's the first Scot to take both the high road and the low road simultaneously, some, <laughs> some, will, get the, well some will get the reference. Well what, what Farage and the Brexit party should have done is take a high road and say, Look, most of the key and natural constituents of the Brexit party are willing to give Boris the benefit of the doubt and more so. And so should we. We're going to sit back, encourage people to vote for a lever, which nine times out of ten would have been the Conservative candidate, and then we'll wait. If Boris fails, we'll come back with conscience clean, and if he succeeds, we'll all partake of the champagne-filled swimming pool in Mallorca together. Instead, they stood for seats where they, in the words of your favourite singer Bob Dylan, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. People in these constituencies, they like the Brexit party, they like Nigel Farage, but they also really like Boris Johnson. And in the system that we live in, that all the people voting know that we live in, they thought, look, we're not going to throw our vote away on a new party. Post, we're going yeah. to vote for the Conservatives. And they yeah. did. Uh, in fact, the only real impact that he made was save a number of Labour MPs, some of them quite prominent. I mean, Yvette, I think he, uh, he saved Yvette Cooper. He saved Ed Miliband. He saved the guy in Hartlepool. Yeah. I mean, R Richard Tice got 11,000 and the Tory got... Uh, I think a couple of thousand more than that. Yep. And the Labour guy got back in. They let him in through the back door, absolutely. And the danger that a lot of people on the pro-Brexit conservative side were worried about was that this could have been repeated throughout the North and yeah, the Midlands. It wasn't, it wasn't obviously. It, it was in these handfuls. But mm. there's no doubt in my mind, and I think in most people's minds, that if there wasn't a Brexit party in places like Hartlepool, in places where, wherever Cooper's seat uh, is, that you'd have a Tory candidate. So Boris would have had ostensibly five more MPs in his majority than he does. Yeah, not that he needs them, uh, <laughs> of course, and not that Labour actually needs uh, some of those people back. Uh, some of them will be problematic uh, indeed. Uh, although, frankly, I think the course that Labour's on is going to produce an entirely new Labour Party, a different kind of Labour Party, uh, which will be quite content in the university towns and in, uh, you know, multicultural. Uh, inner city, London, uh, where they'll still be strong. So um, should Michael Heseltine help Boris to buy his own furniture because he's going to be at number 10 for a while? He's going to be there. I mean, he's not uh, an old man. Uh, he's no. going to be there for at least two terms, I would have thought, given the electoral uh, arithmetic. Um, but 
Boris Johnson no longer needs Nigel Farage. He no longer needs the ERG. Yep. He no longer needs the DUP. Uh, in fact, I suppose my Portillo moment was Nigel Dodds being mm. defeated uh, by John Finucane. Uh The DUP were the kingmakers. They were harvesting a lot of gold uh, from the British Treasury, uh, but they're now uh, a surplus to requirements. Um, Boris Johnson is the king of all he uh, commands. And therefore, uh, we may see some surprising aspects of uh, Boris Johnson. Because I hate to tell you this, Boris Johnson's actually quite a liberal fellow. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about that. This is no Margaret Thatcher. Uh, for all the furore on social media, describing him as a fascist oh, it's and a, all these... Oh, it's insulting it's utter, and it's, it's totally false. Utterly rubbish. On, uh, on, on social issues... He's a social liberal. Yes, he is. Uh, like a lot of the Labour MPs uh, that are now sitting opposite him or will be on Tuesday uh, in, in Parliament. Uh, so what, leave Brexit aside, what kind of government do you think Boris Johnson is going to run? I think it's going to be genuinely pro-free trade, which is something that May's economic illiterates didn't understand. So I think that's going to be positive. I think on social issues, he, Boris Johnson is, and Peter Hitchens has said the same, but in even more withering terms, he is a social liberal, but I don't think he has this desire to shove it down the throats of people the way that the Thornbreeze and the Stormers do. So in that sense, he's a liberal with a traditional small L and that he's live and let live where the well, he's a party kind of guy uh, well, as we know well, quite, like quite Donald so. Trump uh, they like a good party they like Do you a think he might uh, he might uh, legalize drugs for example I don't think so, and I don't hope so with the emphasis on that, but I just, I don't think that there's an appetite for that, mainly because with crime rates getting so much worse, and you can't blame Boris for that, I blame, frankly, everyone from Roy Jenkins up to the present day, maybe it will get worse, maybe it will plateau, but in order to legalize drugs, uh, you, for those who are non-initiated into knowing that drugs fuel crime, fuel terrorism, fuel social decay and degeneracy, you need to have things fairly placid and then put forward the straw man economic argument which totally discounts the moral and ethical side. But when people, most of whom are either on drugs, selling drugs or both, are stabbing and killing each other almost now on a daily basis in London, I don't think it would be a on good time. Basis. Sometimes it feels like uh, that. Daily, yeah. the daily killings, but uh, there's uh, there's dozens of people stabbed in London. Yeah, it's every tragic. Every single uh, day. Let's take some uh, calls, uh, Adam. Said in Bolton, he's up first. Go ahead, Said. Uh, good evening, Mr. Gunway. Um, I just evening. wanted to say first that I'm a very big fan of yours. I've watched and listened to your show Thank you. for a very long Thank time. Thank you. Thank you very um, much. And, and all mediums. Um, and I wanted to say that it was a terrible lack of coverage when, when you were unfortunately attacked savagely um, not too long ago. The media yeah. coverage on that was, yeah. was absolutely terrible. Thank you. Anyway, um, my, I'm a doctor who works in, in the UK, um, and I actually went to see the uh, NHS heist after your recommendation. It's wonderful, yeah. Ago. Fantastic, fine, and I recommend anyone to see, even if you're not in the medical profession. And I saw Bob Gill and Chris Day actually was there as well. He's a hero. Um, he was on Sputnik. He was on my television show, which Neil Clark has been filling in for the last couple of weeks, and Adam 
for a few weeks before that. He was on, so if you look up on uh, YouTube, uh, RT Sputnik, yeah. you'll see Dr. Yeah. Bob uh, give an interview there. He, he is absolutely, and he's, he's inspirational to, to all of us, actually. But yeah. um, what, what perplexed me, actually, uh, Mr. Gallo, is at work um, every day, you know, I came in after the election expecting there to be some gloom and, and well, actually, from all the staff and, and everyone that I was speaking to on a, on a, diff, on a whole range of economic backgrounds, uh, there was a lot of hope and um, happiness and, and satisfaction that, you know, Bob Boris won and the Conservatives won and actually that... They won in Bolton also, didn't they? They did. They took a seat. Yeah, yeah. We were two seats Labour, one seat Conservative, and they won a seat in Bolton, yeah. um, which, you know, has not been for a long time. And, and it just, to me, it, it causes a lot of nihilism a little bit because it's sort of, well, you know, what can you do? Because I can see what's going to happen. We're going to have an American-esque sort of system. Well, you say that, you say that uh, Doctor, but he, he, he actually picked out the NHS specifically in his post-election uh, and he, he showered he it with praise and promised to shower it with money and new jobs uh, for people and so on. Uh, are you really sure that he would uh, try to go down that road? I think myself what? not, because the response, what? the reaction to it would be the one thing that could actually dump him on his ample backside, because I don't believe the British will ever go along with the Americanization of the health service. Fair, fair enough. Um, I, I, hope, I hope that's true. I, what, so he's pledged $33 billion, I think it was today, something yeah. a, a large figure today. Yeah. Um, what I worry, I don't think it's going to be a big transition, but in, in the documentary on the Bob Gill, he says that people are moving towards a blame culture of, oh, well, you know, we've got an aging population and et cetera, and therefore we need interventions and subcontracting of services because we aren't good enough to do it ourselves. Um, and, and that I see, I don't see a big transition happening, um, you know, and bringing in all the pharmaceutical companies. Well, yeah, I like mean, uh, I can't speak for Dr. Bob, but I would have thought his case would be uh, the health service has already been being privatized since the yes. period of uh, Mrs. Thatcher and accelerating under Blair and Brown, uh, and that that process of part privatization will continue to happen. But an American-style yes. insurance system, I very much doubt that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Listen, thank you. Thank you, Saeed, for a thank wonderful you. call. Let's go to line two. Shazad is in Moscow. I must take a call from Moscow. It might be new instructions. <laughs> go ahead, Shazad. Hello, George. Um, uh, yes, I am in, in Moscow right now. I don't live here, but um, yeah, Putin says hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, Who did he vote for? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he wanted, I mean, sometimes he wanted Jeremy to win, sometimes he wanted Johnson to win. Well, uh, it, Either, no way, really either way, he was, according, according to each other, uh, he was backing both of them. <laughs> so I guess he, he wins no matter he who. He wins I'm, no matter. Yeah. <laughs> he wins everything. A bit like Sturge. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Shazad, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to keep this as short as possible because I know both of you have uh, very little time. It's also expensive um, calling from Moscow, so go ahead. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, recently um, um, announced after after a horrible defeat, of course, uh, that he won't be standing in the next elections. Whenever yeah, they might uh, be. he's going to stand um, down very quickly now, I think. Exactly. And so my question basically is, who who would you foresee as uh, as the next Labour leader? I mean. We do see quite a few leftists in the Labour Party, but when I think Jeremy Corbyn in no. Downing Street, uh, I think yeah. I don't I think, think free, uh, I, I think a free Assange, I think free uh, a free Palestine. I I see momentum for Bernie Sanders going into his election. Hmm. I see you know I, I see a couple of uh, radical policies that you know few soft leftists in the Labour Party won't necessarily. You know, go I know, ahead and... they, they won't. Uh, I think the chances of uh, a left-wing leader of the Labour Party are now zero uh, because uh, none of the very few uh, left-wing Labour MPs that got back uh, have uh, sufficient numbers to be on the ballot paper. Uh, they are mm. young, uh, untried and so on. Uh, they're exceedingly unlikely to meet the threshold for being on the ballot paper. Uh, so the uh, the spectrum will go from uh, Rebecca Long Bailey and Angela Rayner. They'll be as left as you get, uh, and as right as you get will be Jess Phillips. I, I can't believe I'm saying these words. <laughs> Jess Phillips is now a candidate to be leader of the <laughs> Labour Party, and in between you'll have the North London Mafia uh, of Sir Keir Starmer, Sir. Uh, Sir, Sir Keir Starmer, Lady Nuggy, otherwise known as Emily Thornberry. Uh, they'll be, and, and uh, Keir Starmer's the bookie's favourite already. He's two to one. Uh, so I, I rather suspect he'll get it, uh, which means that Tony Blair is back in charge of the Labour Party. So for me, yeah. after a long, long, long affair, it's over. Uh, the Labour Party and me, definitely over. And over forever. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you don't mind me asking up a follow-up question, then yeah. wouldn't wouldn't it then be wouldn't it then have just made sense? I mean, okay, I understand that in hindsight, uh, Jeremy Corbyn should have had a more neutral, or you know, he should have probably been pro Brexit. But okay, um, it's all it's all over now. Don't you think that uh, the people in the north northeast Shouldn't they have just swallowed their pride and sacrificed <laughs> well, Brexit they, they, as opportunity cost? Well, uh, Shazad, in, you know, they, for everything in, in Labour's manifesto. You know, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. Shazad should have, could have, would have, maybe, you know, none of that is important. They didn't. Uh, and I, it's not that Labour wasn't warned. I myself, like, uh, like, uh, who was the famous guy in the classics in the wilderness, Cassandra. Uh, I, I cried as Cassandra in the wilderness all of this time. I warned them, I you told them. Both. I told them what was going to happen. And it did happen. And all these uh, Corbynites that now hate me and, and unfollowed me and tried to shoot the messenger, they were all wrong. Uh, and so they should have listened. And it wasn't only me. Uh, it was people very close to the centers of power in the Labour Party. One day I'll be able to name them, uh, who warned them over and over and over again, uh, but they were all ignored. And I'm afraid 
There's no way back from that now. Shazad, thanks from the call in Moscow. Let's go to Jamal in Richmond. Jamal. George, nice talking to you again. And you, How sir? are you today? By the grace of God, I'm good. Um, Thank you. Excellent. Um, and also, Adam, you know, I love both of you guys. Thank you. Um, so Very kind. I, I, I agree with you greatly on this, right? I have severe qualms with the democracy of flagrantly ignoring um, the public. I mean, mm. ultimately, the public, you know, branch of democracy, say we want to leave, and the Labor Party yeah. just yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, sort of the largest, biggest choice of, of a generation. Yeah. But what, they, what they did, Jamal, was uh, what Brecht uh, satirized. The party has lost confidence in the people and has decided to select a new one. Uh, that's what they tried to do, and it didn't work. It, let me ask you this. Corbyn is a real skeptic. Why on earth would he listen to people who hated his guts? I mean, well, he did Blairites that on all kinds like of things, didn't he? That's what he did on everything. Yeah. He preferred the, I mean, he preferred the, uh, the, con the concession and the appeasement of those who hated him he was ready to throw his own friends, one of whom is me, uh, under the bus uh, in order to appease them. And that would be ugly enough uh, if it worked. But it didn't work. So it's both ugly and idiotic. Do you believe that factions of the Labour Party had it out for him? Meaning, kind of similar to things here. Is the Pope a Catholic? Do <laughs> bears defecate in the woods? <laughs> <laughs> um, last question uh, Ireland, so what happens to the Good Friday Agreement on this? No problem I mean, Ireland, don't you worry about Ireland Ireland should never have been our business Ireland will be reunited uh, within, before you can say Jack Robinson, trust me on that Ireland will be reunited and all of them can enjoy the European Union, but I promise them they won't enjoy it as much as they currently think uh, that they will Jamal, thanks uh, very much. I need to uh, press on. Uh, here's a question for you, Adam. Do you think the decline in quality of Labour MPs is down to the ending of the grammar schools? I could have asked that myself because I think that it's a totally true uh, hypothesis. Grammar schools produce people that could walk with kings nor lose the common touch, to quote Kipling. And they were institutions that were very important. They were considered progressive in their day, but they received support from, from both sides. Beveridge on the liberal side supported them. Attlee's government supported them. Churchill and Butler. Butler in particular supported them. And then in the 60s when the Cultural Revolution, I'm talking about the one in Britain, not the more famous one in China. Uh, China got rid of theirs wisely, we're still suffering here. But when that happened in that era of Jenkins under the Wilson government, and I say Jenkins because on social and cultural issues, he was in charge, not Wilson. Uh, you had grammar schools become public enemy number one. When the Conservatives got back in, nothing was changed. And there was talk about uh, supporting grammars uh, after 2017, but nothing's going to get done on that front, even in terms of a discussion until Brexit's done. So yeah, I think it produced people that were very level-headed, very well-rounded, circumspect 
circumspection was something very important. And now with Labour, you have sort of a combination of people who are educated at badly educated at good schools and badly educated at bad schools. And it's not exclusive to Labour by any means. But when you think of the logic of it, the grammar schools benefited natural Labour constituents and potentially natural Labour MPs far more than even the other parties. So I think uh, the writer of that question that was on uh, socialist tipster. Uh, very much on something. And here's another one from Angela in Newport. Adam, do you think we've heard the last of Gina Miller <laughs> or has she got more tricks up her sleeve? Well, this again, I, I keep mentioning Nicola Sturgeon, who was the other big winner uh, last week, even though I'm no fan of hers. Uh, but I can imagine that when Nicola and her SNP start arguing for a new Scottish referendum, some of the best arguments against having one were produced by the SNP and their gang of lawyers that they surrounded themselves with like a Hadrian's Wall of barristers. Uh, you know, the Hadrian's Wall is going to wear a giant horsehair wig at this rate. So I don't know what Gina Miller's view is on that. And she was saying that she's got another trick up her sleeve. But look, parliamentary sovereignty is now restored and under, under a majority government, you're not going to see it challenged with these minutiae and these technicalities. So I think a, I mean, a jig is every up. cloud has a silver lining. I believe that uh, Boris Johnson with a majority of 80 is a very dark cloud. Uh, but it does have the silver lining that all these people have wasted a very great deal of money. Not yeah. usually their own money, uh, money that they, uh, that they got from others. Uh, but everyone who has expended, must be tens, scores maybe, of millions of pounds trying to wreck Brexit. You know, Tony Blair, George Soros, Alistair Campbell, the, the People's Vote people. Uh, uh, they've all lost an, an absolute king's ransom of money. Well, seeing as Bob Geldof was one of the initial Romaniacs who did a Sex Pistols-style boat run down the Thames screaming at Nigel Farage and Kate Hoey, maybe he can organise a live rock concert festival to raise money for Gina Miller's benefactors <laughs> and all the others. You could call it Blair-Aid, Brex-Aid, Romain-Aid, <laughs> Merkel-Aid, you know, all gather at Wembley Stadium. You know, do they know it's Brexit time at all? <laughs> That's a good moment. What was your Portillo moment? A, Joe Swinson, 52%. Chuka Amona, 28%. Anna Subri, 20%. Poor Anna. She can't even win the poll. <laughs> she can't, can't even, even win, win this poll. the poll for the best Portillo moment. <laughs> She'll have to go and have a drink and lie down. <laughs> oh, no, she is already. Uh, now, uh, Ian in Colchester says, Adam, once the UK has left the EU, do you think reduction in UK influence in Europe will result in the EU, Germany, relaxing sanctions on Russia and potential secure energy requirements from Russia? That's an interesting question. It's from Ian in Colchester. It is indeed. I, I th in other I, words, will the EU be more or less anti-Russian? when Britain leaves? I think it's going to be exactly the same. Uh, whilst people in this country didn't really notice, uh, the uh, Chancellor of Germany, Merkel, Macron, the French president, the fairly new Ukrainian president of Trump phone call fame, and Putin all met to discuss the Ukrainian issue. Yeah, not, yeah. not Trump's Ukrainian issue, but the original Ukrainian yeah. issue. Yeah. And Pete, for, from the very beginning, Britain was sort of 
chirping at the sidelines when the whole sort of Europe versus Russia over this Ukraine issue began. And so if that was Britain in the EU, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference outside of the EU. And moreover, EU policy towards Russia is essentially American policy towards Russia with a bit of economic self-interest sprinkled on top. So I honestly don't think it's going to make a bit of a difference one way or the other. Jenny in Newport on line one. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi. You okay? Yeah, very nice to hear from you. All right, good. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about um, why I found it so hard to vote Labour this time, even though I'm a Labour member. Oh, wow. Um, and I really, really found it very hard, as a lot of women have, because um, Labour has been very vocal about um, uh, women uh, can have penises, uh, and um, which is obviously a bit of a difficulty when uh, actual women disagree quite strongly with that. And uh, so there's problems in schools and uh, everywhere, really, where women haven't got, um, you know, sort of, we're, we're expected to share toilets with men, uh, changing rooms with men. Sport, uh, sport, sports with yeah. men, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sports awards, and um, you know, I mean, in primary schools, sex education is including gender education, which is you know, conflating sex with gender is a mistake. And um, why did Labour go so wholesale down this uh, yellow brick road? Uh, it's utterly crazed. It's crazy paving. Uh, yeah, the, the Liberals one expects it from. Why do you think Labour? I mean, how does that play in South Wales? Well, I mean, it, it's ridiculous because ordinary people, they don't want to know about it. it it's, it's, you know, uh, to an ordinary person in South Wales, you know, a woman is a woman, a man is a man. And, you know, we don't want our children at schools being taught that they've got an option of, of, of um, their, their, um, uh, their, their gender, which is, I mean, gender is just simply an expression of sex. It's not an actual sort of thing. Uh, and it's very, very confusing, and we're getting a, a large number of uh, kids who are um, expressing them uh, that they um, want to change gender. And um, so the Tavistock Clinic in London is now taking in 3,500-odd um, kids a year um, from um, under 100 10 years ago. And, and some of those are obviously from South Wales, and we are having our own um, gender clinic set up in Wales, um, which um, no one's particularly thrilled about. Um, and, um, you know, and obviously, you know, you've got problems like in um, Birmingham with uh, Anderton Park, where um, there's a large number of uh, Muslim people, uh, and they don't want their ever being very vocal, and, and I personally think quite brave, because they're always being called bigots, and transphobes and yeah, all the rest of it. we're always called uh, bigots if we, if we stand up against this tide of, uh, of absurdity that uh, has become political uh, yeah. correctness. I mean, obviously the children's issue that I'm going to ask Adam about in a second, the children's issue is infinitely more serious. I actually yeah. believe this, this constitutes a crime against children. Uh, oh, that's I, happening I agree. In, uh, in this country and in the yeah. United States, where children are being given 
uh, puberty blockers and uh, yeah. uh, uh, it, it, it's simply horrendous and nobody uh, is standing up against it for no, I mean, fear no, no, no. of being denounced as a bigot. Yeah. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time being called a bigot and a transphobe along with my um, mm. women's group um, on Twitter um, uh, um, as, as we sort of like just discuss things. Um, you know, we get death threats and rape threats daily from... Um, well, um, I, I, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say, uh, Jenny. Mm. I just want to ask you a much lesser order issue. Uh, Labour has gone so hook, line and sinker uh, on this issue mm. that they are now allowing men who identify as women mm. to stand in all women shortlists yeah. designed to get more women into Parliament. How crazy yeah. is that? I know. I know it's ridiculous, and 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 you know if if they they will try and get rid of actively try and get rid of women who are mm. gender critical, um, you know. Gender and critical. And oh my it, God! It, well, look, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, Jenny, stay on the line. I'm going to ask Adam to comment, but they can call me a bigot if they like. They can call me uh, any kind of phobe uh, that they like, but I consider this to be peak madness. And I am going to speak out against it. Adam, what do you say? Well, I agree. My message to politicians, to pundits, to so-called academics and think tankers, stop sexualizing the children. Leave the children the hell alone. If an adult wants to chop off body parts, add body parts, top himself, do any of those things, that's between him, his friends, his religion if he has one, and other such things. But leave children alone. In every sense, stop politicizing children. Stop sexualizing children. Stop telling children there's something wrong with them just because they're having a bad day or because they're having growing pains or because they're bullied at school as all children are once in a while or at least once. This, this fetishization of youth that we've gotten in the political culture and the social culture, now we see that trickling down to very young children. It starts by saying ignore the generation who fought the Battle of Britain, ignore the people who are paying the taxes to fund the schools that are supposedly educating the children. Then you see people like that loudmouth woman who calls herself a communist, swearing like a drunk sailor on television, why they give her the airtime in this age of so-called no platforming, I don't know. I suppose idiocy doesn't count as a protected social group. And then at the end of that spectrum, of that long journey into darkness, you see children being molested, literally molested, by the schools, by political organizations, by brainwashed parents from these organizations that are trying to destroy a kid's life. Let children be children. They can find out about sexual matters and matters of marriage and relationships when they're in their mid-teens, just like it's always been. Human nature hasn't changed since the Garden of Eden. Legislation shouldn't either. Well, that was a powerful call and a very powerful contribution from you, Adam. Thank you for it. Let's uh, cross over to the United States. Different subject. Sammy is in... Washington State. Sammy, welcome. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good, good. Nice to hear from you. Sorry it's so late in the night. Oh, that's all right. I'd like to congr congratulate you for the creation of your party. 
Thank you. Um, sorry, wondering about this, what strategies Bernie Sanders' campaign can implement to, uh, to avoid the same fate as Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I wish I knew, uh, because uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I suppose the first thing he has to do is not do what Jeremy Corbyn did, or he'll end up in the same uh, boat. Uh, he has to, uh, I could write it now, uh, he has to take the most uh, forthright uh, defensive position and become mm -hmm. offensive. Uh, he has to say, I am a Jew. I yeah. have relatives who perished in the Holocaust. I will not be called an anti-Semite. And he should say it with all the power that he can muster. And he should not retreat from it. He should not apologize for things that he said and done in the past on these uh, matters. Because we have a saying in Glasgow, Sammy, if you don't run, they can't chase you. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And um, going back to what you and Adam were talking about earlier, you're talking about how Jeremy Corbyn capitulated to people who were opposing him and threw people uh, under the bus who were supporting him. Yeah. And you can see the same thing with Bernie Sanders, uh, with Tulsi Gabbard and other progressives who've been thrown under the bus and um, and his his going with Russiagate, which is a, a completely brainwashed narrative. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy, yeah. especially as they've got all the pictures of his honeymoon in Moscow. Uh, Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and the Russians will have some too. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps so I'd better draw a veil over his honeymoon. Uh, Sammy, thanks for the call. Sorry about the hour, meaning it will have to be cut short because I've got Laura in London on the line to fit in. At least, go ahead, Laura. Thank, thank you very much. Um, well, I wanted to say that um, I believe the uh, Tories will now uh, be on steroids with regard to uh, selling or privatising the NHS. On Friday the 13th, if you go to Twitter, um, there's an audio recording from Friday the 13th of Damien Green being interviewed on yeah, LBC. But da Damien Green doesn't run the government. Boris Johnson no, but does. He's but he's got uh, colleagues and friends in the government. He does, he yeah, of course. About... There, there's lots of people, even in the so, government, so that would like he... to do that. But Johnson himself said what he said, and you heard him. So why do you think that Damien Green's policy will prevail over Boris Johnson's? Well, because they've, they've, they've had this attitude, this ideology for decades, and uh, Let Win and Redwood wrote the book in the 80s or 70s, privatising the Let, world. Yeah, Let Win's not calling many shots in the Tory uh, well, party, no. But, no. but um, He's John Pilger's, Pilger's um, documentary, mm. The Dirty War on the NHS, is on ITV on Tuesday yeah, night, 10.45. And powerful. I believe that absolutely everyone needs to watch it or record it if yeah. they're in bed or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, That's that, ITV that, Tuesday 10.45 in the evening, and if the, if the first five minutes doesn't alarm people, then I don't know what will alarm them, because it's about patient dumping, and that, that, that sort of thing almost happened to, well, kind of happened to me in London um, a few years ago. But anyway, um, what I wanted to say about your first caller, the female who rang in, and she liked the renationalization idea manifesto that um, Corbyn had, and she made it clear that that would 
benefit her, her, her finances and her life, etc. Mm. Um, and yet she went and it, I can understand she being resentful at, at, at the Blairites. I am too. What I don't understand or have difficulty understanding is voting for the Tories when it's clear that they have every intention of privatizing anything that moves and they have no intention of renationalizing utilities or, or, or rail mm. and prices will just go up and up and up mm. and the poorest people will be fleeced for the benefit of the richest. So unfortunately, while I understand her anger or resentment, what she's but her anger, but, uh, Laura, her anger and resentment were not, was not at the Blairites. Her anger and resentment was at Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell because of their provocation, her word, the provocation of denying the people who voted for Brexit and won the outcome of that referendum. Well, can't, I don't, can't you see that, Laura? No, I understand, no, I understand that. I don't believe that that's what... Corbyn wanted to, I think they had his arm up his back. And, John and, McDonald and, and Diane Abbott, they had, they, they and, had his hand up his back, yeah? Yeah, and, 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 and Starmer and Watson and, and all of these people. Yeah. Um, and yeah. act, if people look at a recording of, of Thursday night when Jess Phillips didn't realise she was on camera, she was laughing when she, she knew the Brexit, the, 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 the polls of, of that evening. Mm. And as soon as the, she realised she was on camera, she straightened her face and her expression and everything. Okay. I mean, these Laura, people thanks. have uh, a I've lot got to cut you short. Okay. Yeah, I, I've got to cut you short. It was a very good call. Thanks very much for making it. Mike is in South Carolina. Mike, welcome. Hi, George. Great to talk to you again. And you, sir. Uh, I, I wanted to mention to you, I listened to your show today, and I've, I've heard all the callers from uh, Carol and Chris and a whole bunch of others talking about this is the first time they've mm -hmm. ever voted for the uh, Tories. And uh, and it just reminds me, you and I are the same age, it reminds me of the time here in the United States when all of the Democrats became Reagan Democrats. And yeah, and they felt that the party was leaving them, which is exactly what's happened over there yeah, right now. It the, is the, quite the, similar. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, these yeah, people they, in these labor seats that have gone Tory, they you could say they are uh, they are uh, uh, Reagan Democrats. They are Boris yes, Johnson it, it, Tories. Almost, yeah. yeah, almost exactly the same thing. And 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 you and I were right uh, the, the full time about what uh, uh, his stand about Brexit was going to be because you can't deny, you know, the, the people's, you know, votes no. to leave. No. It, not when 52% of the people voted for it. And I think it's probably only grown since then. So yeah. you automatically put yourself in a minority when you say you're not going to support Brexit. Yeah. And know? especially in uh, our, in our system, uh, where you only yeah, need a majority of one in any constituency and you've won the seat. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if yes. you, if you, it's not like a presidential system where millions of votes are aggregated. It's 10, yeah. 11, 12,000 votes in any one particular place. And if you alienate 5,000 people who voted for you last time but vote against you this time, you're out. Exactly right. Exactly right. Mike, thanks for the call. Sorry about the hour making it necessary uh, that it should be brief. I've got a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol who's got advice for Jeremy Corbyn. Norma, welcome. Hello, George. Um, well, it is advice for Jeremy Corbyn, yes. Go on. Um, I think he should get out of politics. He's 70 years old. 
I disagree with that Carol, I think her name was, from Halifax, mm-hmm. who said that uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, has not got sympathy for the working class. Um, now, Tony Benn, he said, when he got outside of the House of Commons, he was happier. And you know what? I think Jeremy could follow suit. Yeah, and if he, he goes on tour like uh, Mr. Benn did, uh, he'll pack out theatres the length and breadth of the, of the land. Jeremy Corbyn in conversation. He can do as Mr. Ben did uh, and uh, leave Parliament to spend more time in politics. Well, yep. Yeah, and the other thing, he'd be away from all this vilification and he might give help to, you know, those he, who, he, who need it because he has got um, sympathy for the working class. I basically think he's a nice guy and I just get out of politics. Well, a uh, very powerful call. Uh, we'll make sure that your advice uh, reaches him. Thank you very much, Norma, in Bristol. What was your Portillo moment? Joe Swinson, still 52. Chuka Muna, 20. I thought Chuka would be higher. Yes. I, I mean, Chuka's defeat was one of the sweetest moments for me. Oh, it certainly was. But I think for me, the sweetest moment of all was that smug idiot Hugh Grant. All of the people he endorsed and campaigned for, <laughs> every single one of them lost. So I'm sorry for all those nasty things I said, Hugh. Please campaign against everyone I disagree with next time because you, you've got the Midas touch. <laughs> well, there's one minute to go. You can still vote on that. What was your Portillo moment? Joe Swinson, Chuka Amuna or Anna Subri? Um, Chris M. asks, do you think the new House Speaker will try and wreck Brexit like Bercow did? Well, he can't because when you've got a, when you've got a majority, it's, it's really impossible for, for the Speaker, even if it's an overzealous one, to pull the tricks out that Burko did. Burko was only able to do what he was able to do because there was no quantifiable majority in Parliament. That's no longer the issue. And whilst we haven't seen much of the new Speaker, Mr Lindsay Hoyle, what I've seen so far is... Sir Lindsay. So that's correct, Sir Lindsay. What we've seen of him so far is much, much more hopeful than Burko. He's now, a top man. He's a top man. I actually, speaking of Burko, he was on one of the television yes, stations. Yes, I was just about to ask you. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's got no future as a TV political pundit because he takes about five minutes to make a single point. <laughs> he doesn't have the privileges that one has in exactly. the House of Commons. He's used to this orotund, baroque, and very slow, portentous, pompous delivery, but in television you've got to act fast. Yeah, and so I, I, only, I watched it maybe for 60 seconds at a time thinking, I wonder if he's going to slag off anyone interesting for entertainment value, which is the only reason anyone watches television anymore, who's getting slagged off. And instead it was just, it was Burko waxing lyrical about his favorite subject in the world, John Burko, so. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly, or paying fulsome tribute to the person who had just been uh, defeated. Well, they were his mates, to be Exactly, yeah. uh, why wouldn't Boris give Scotland another referendum, as he would have an even bigger majority in the House of Commons? This from James in Dundee. Uh, the thesis being, if Scotland leaves, uh, then the parliamentary arithmetic in the Parliament of England and Wales uh, would be, uh, on current form, overwhelmingly conservative. But it, mm. that's uh, too mechanical uh, a rather clunkily also uh, uh, um, uh, 
a conclusion to reach, don't you think? Well, there's a lot of assumptions in there. And the first assumption is that people would vote for independence. I don't think that they would. In the same way that at a, at a, at a four nations level, people learned that the baying mobs on social media don't influence elections one way or the other, something I said to much excoriation a few weeks ago. I think with Scotland... You certainly were vindicated on that. Oh, indeed. That was the sweetest vindication. If, if you spend your whole life on Twitter then you thought Jeremy Corbyn was in with a 350 majority. Not only that, you would have thought that he would abolish parliamentary politics and make the people on Twitter member of the Politburo, but it doesn't work like that. Now, the Scottish analogy, uh, moving on from that, is this. The SNP are the most articulate party in Scotland. Their supporters are the most outspoken. I don't know if that means that a majority of Scots would vote for independence. I have a feeling that, if anything, if there was an indie ref held, let's say three months from now, I think you'd get an almost identical result to the one you got before Brexit was a word that existed. I think that when push comes to shove, the SNP is a brilliant protest vote, and it's the best of both worlds. You win, but you can still be a rebel. You're a rebel with a cause, but I'm not sure that they want the cause to succeed. Much like the Brexit party, the SNP could be victims of their own success, but Sturgeon is a bit better of a tactician. I say, unfortunately, than Farage. Mr. Brown, UK, do you really think that England would need to build a wall with Scotland should the latter get independence and then EU membership? It seems a tad extreme. But hey, England would need to secure the border somehow. They would, wouldn't they? Well, Julius Caesar built the wall, so I don't know what they're Just arguing rebuild about. It. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, I mean, seriously, if Scotland uh, left Britain, joined the European Union, would have to accept free movement of cheap East European labour into Scotland, much of which would much prefer to be in England than Scotland, because there are more jobs uh, in uh, the English labour market than there can ever be in the Scottish labour market by a, a matter of simple arithmetic. How would you stop those who'd come under freedom of movement to Scotland finding their way into the English labour market. Well, at a legal level, it's the same arguments that have been deployed to talk about what happens to Ireland in the case of Brexit, because the Republic of Ireland is staying in the EU, freedom of movement, and the rest of it, Northern Ireland isn't. But obviously, the, the qualitative difference is that you can't walk from Ireland to London. You can, if you've got good walking shoes, walk from Scotland, climb what remains of Julius Caesar and Hadrian and the rest of it. And I've those done walls. it. Well, well done. Um, you Yep, so it is possible. So that is the difference. So there would need to be some sort of electronic means of monitoring these things. But I honestly, I think that the Scottish indie wind is going to quickly drop from the sails. I just don't, I think it's going to be a brilliant protest issue. I don't see Scotland leaving. I just don't. Well, uh, I mean, uh, I suspect we'll see uh, soon enough uh, because, uh, of course, uh Nicola Sturgeon has a, a powerful point when she says uh, we swept the boards in this election. We did so explicitly on uh, demand for a new referendum. Uh, the, it will be very difficult forever for the UK Parliament to deny another referendum. I personally say bring it on. Yeah. I am looking forward uh, to the short sword fighting uh, back up in my old... Uh, stamping ground. To quote Donald Trump, right, you're going to get hill. tired of winning. <laughs> <laughs> get tired 
of winning and being right. Well, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you, and if it was, I hope you'll come back next week at the same time, same place, and bring another viewer or listener with you. Please spread the word about the mother of all talk shows, because I think I can say that this show this evening has been the best post-election coverage over three hours that anyone could possibly ask for. We've had every point of view reflected, and that's the way it should be. It's the mother of all talk shows.